Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Book, the New Books Network. I'm Bob Wilson, Associate Professor of Geography in the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. I'm very pleased to have Neil Marr with me as a guest. Neil is Associate Professor of History at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Welcome to New Book, the New Books Network. I'm Bob Wilson, Associate Professor of Geography in the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. I'm very pleased to have Neil Marr with me as a guest. Neil is Associate Professor of History at the New Jersey Institute of Technology and a scholar of environmental history, the history of technology, and American political history. He joins me today for a conversation about his new book, Apollo in the Age of Aquarius, recently published by Harvard University Press. He examines the connections and often fraught relationship between the NASA-led space program of the 60s and 70s and the social movements of the era, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the environmental movement, and others. His book is a fascinating, careful look at how the seminal events and reform movements of that era intersected often in surprising and enduring ways. Neil is also the author of Nature's New Deal, the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Roots of the American Environmental Movement, a key study of the popular New Deal era agency and its role in laying the groundwork for the growth of environmentalism in the mid-20th century. For many years, Neil was also co-editor of the gallery section of the journal Environmental History, a part of the, a part of the journal that showcased uh, interpretations and analyses of historical images. So I'm eager to talk with Neil about the space race, 60s-era social movements and the legacy of those events today. So, Neil, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here, Bob. Thanks so much. I'm so glad you could be here. Me too. Uh, At first glance, I think it might seem that America's race to the moon in the 1960s and the social movements of that era don't have much to do with one another. What made you think that there was an important relationship between these things? Um, I think it really had to do with my research, and I should probably explain a little bit how the book changed over time, because this book, when it started out, was a very different sort of book. And I think that speaks to this issue of how, in my own thinking, these two events, the space race and these social movements, became linked. So in the in the beginning, I, I was basically going to identify interesting um, events or moments or themes that within the space race that might appeal to environmental historians. That's my main field. So I identified, you know, five or six, what I thought of as, you know, thematic buckets. One was, you know, Cape Canaveral down in Florida is actually surrounded by a wildlife refuge. I thought, oh, that would be interesting for environmental mm-hmm. historians or um, that, that shot of earth from space and how it informed environmental politics. So I found four or five of those and I thought that's a great book. But then I realized that if I did that, it would really, not fall into a trap, but it would it would create issues with um, a book that I also think are reflected in, in some limitations to the field of environmental history, which is that we tend to 
focus narrowly on events or things that seem to have a very obvious connection to nature, like parks or pollution or environmental legislation. Sure. Um, you know, and then secondly, the, the as I did my research, the politics of this period kept seeping into my research. I kept coming across references to civil rights or the Vietnam War while I was doing this research on the Apollo program. So it was a combination of wanting to push beyond that narrow environmental history sort of lens um, and also incorporate, you know, the, the politics that I kept sort of seeing in my research um, as I was doing it, sort of bring those two together and make the book sort of a, a bigger book. And that might be surprising to people who aren't old enough to remember that era is that this uh, seminal achievement of American technology of putting a, um, putting men on the moon. This is happening during this time of incredible social tumult uh, in the in the United States. As you know, um, at one part in the book is that the Woodstock Music Festival happens within within a few weeks yeah. of the the first landing of the moon, the Apollo eleven landing of the moon in nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. I think that we we think about those events. And we think of, we tend to separate them, you know, in our cultural memory. We think, oh, you know, in July of 1969, millions of people migrated down to the Cape. Many, many millions watched it all over the world. And we sort of all thought we came together at this moment of national prestige. We were victorious in getting to the moon first. We think of it as a very unifying moment. But then three weeks later, you know, half a million young people flocked to upstate New York uh, to attend the, you know, the Woodstock Music Festival. And much of that was, a, you know, sort of a rage against um, that sort of mainstream culture. A lot of the music was about, you know, against the Vietnam War. Um, and and we, we, we tend to think of the divisions of Woodstock um, and the un unity of, of Apollo landing as happening in sort of separate universes, right? But they really happened three weeks apart. And I, I just realized that these two sort of sentiments were not only happening at the same time, we're, we're actually quite dependent on each other. The counterculture got a lot of its energy from mainstream culture and sort of the conservative or mainstream culture got a lot of its sort of energy, I think, from uh, those grassroots social movements of the time. Yeah, and I want to come back to this interesting relationship between the counterculture of the hippies at the time and their kind of somewhat adversarial relationship with, with NASA and the somewhat embrace of NASA and the space program by the new right. Um, but a more personal question, do you have memories of the Apollo missions or, or protests during the 60s and, and uh, early 70s? You know, I, I sort of don't. I mean, I was, I was too young at the time, but in the conclusion of the book, I sort of bring in um, some personal, you know, relationship to the era, which is that my uncles, um, I had two uncles, we, we lived outside of New York City, in the suburbs, but my uncles lived in the city and they were very much activists and very much opposed to the Vietnam War. And when I interviewed them for the book, they were also quite opposed to uh, the space program. Um, Interesting. And my mother and her sister, who both lived in the suburbs and had children, were sort of caught on the other end of that generational divide. Not that they you know, were conservative or, or supported the space program, but they very much were huddled around the television sets, you know, watching the Apollo launches and and the good thing was in my family was that the, the brothers and sisters communicated to each other and they were close. So my mother understood her brothers and my brother, my uncles understood their sisters. And there was this communication that was going on that I think was very prevalent in the sixties and very much part of what my book is trying to express is this idea of, you know, this communication across these cultures, which I think we, we don't have, for instance, as much today. 
So it seems like you have this personal connection with your family to some of these events during uh, the time. And it's interesting to hear that your uncles were both against the, the Vietnam War and, uh, and opposed to maybe NASA and the space program at, at the time. But in terms of scholarly, I mean, your, your book is a scholarly book, right. you're probably trying to contribute to a set of um, scholarly conversations. And so how have historians and other scholars typically studied the space race or sure. uh, other scholars studied the social movements? Because I imagine those are very separate literatures and you're trying to bring these literatures in one sense together, but also to to to, to speak to both of them, but maybe challenge them. In some yeah. Way. Yeah. I mean, um, I think that uh, the space history literature it's changing now, but I think that, you know, for instance, when I started the book um, too long ago for me to even admit, but um, it seemed back then that the space historians, I spent a year at the Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., and they were an incredibly welcoming and smart group of people, um, but they did seem to be very focused on the technology, the, history, sure. the technological history on the one hand. So whenever I did a presentation, I had to make sure I got my technology right. Um, but then if they did branch out into, for instance, political history, it was almost always embedded in the Cold War. You know, in other words, politics didn't didn't get down to a grassroots level. It was always this sort of larger, you know, um, Cold War context. Um, so it seemed like the space historians suffered in a way from the same problem that the environmental historians had suffered from, which, which was that they seemed to write and think about their history in sort of narrow ways. They didn't connected to these broader issues. Um, so I tried to do that through the social movements. Um, and then for the, the social historians and I'm sorry, the, the historians of social movements and political movements, the, the, the period of the 1960s seems to have been written very much by participants. So there yes. were a lot of people who were engaged in those movements who wrote them and they're really good histories. But I think now that we've moved a little bit farther away from that period, we're getting more scholarly, um, you know, uh, engagements with that, that literature a little bit more and that history more. Um, well, let's dive into your know, talk about these social movements. You're talking about social movement uh, histories and, and historians who write them. So let's dive into some of the, the social movements that you talk about, because you basically kind of divide the book into these different chapters focusing on uh, different social movements of the era. And you actually open the, the main heart of the book by talking about uh, civil rights protesters who were at the launch of Apollo 11 in Florida, which is something that I never knew until I read your book. So why did civil rights activists in that particular case, and then more generally, why were they critical of the Apollo program? Well, I think the, the criticism is really voiced really well by those activists that you just mentioned. Um, this protest was was read by, led by Ralph Abernathy, who was Martin Luther King's right-hand man. He organized a march to Cape Canaveral on the eve of the Apollo 11 launch. And he brought with him four mules, two rickety old wagons, and 25 poor African-American families. And he, he marched on the Kennedy Space Center, and he, he had Thomas Paine, who was the head of NASA, meet him um, at the gates early in the morning um, at either end of a, of, a, of a damp field, right? So Abernathy and his mules are at one end, um, Thomas Paine and his NASA managers are at the other end, and in the middle are you know, dozens of newspaper reporters and television crews because Abernathy was, you know, a really, really savvy strategist when it came to these things. Anyway, they get to the middle and, and Abernathy takes the microphone and he says, you know, we're not here to protest the Apollo 11 launch tomorrow. He said, actually, we're very proud of it. He said, instead, we're here to protest America's distorted sense of priorities. 
Mm-hmm. And he went on to say that we're spending, you know, all this money to, to explore outer space and go to the moon when we have people like the people with me, he said, who, you know, can't afford food on their table and don't have a, a clean and safe place to live. Um, so that was the main gripe. Why spend all this money going out there when we have these problems back home? Yeah, I see that. And you have some really amazing photos in here that, that show this um uh, show these two groups coming together in this field in Florida. I think it's testament to how uh, important this protest was that the head of NASA the day before the yeah. Apollo 11 is launched is going to take time out of his, his schedule to to meet and come here, to feel that he must um, uh, come there. And yeah. so in this chapter, you seem to talk a lot about uh, the, why they're, the civil rights activists uh, are un uneasy with NASA and how it represents maybe some misplaced priorities on part of the federal government. But in reaction to this, which is something I found very fascinating, it just showed that in in some ways that NASA ends up becoming involved with the war on poverty and urban renewal, which is not something that I would really think of NASA doing any time, especially then. Well, what's interesting is that in the 1960s, NASA can sort of ignore these civil rights activists. You know, um, before Abernathy marched on Cape Canaveral, you had civil rights activists who were doing um, boycotts of, of, of lunar launches. Um, they were doing sit-ins uh, under, you know, uh, fake lunar landing modules out of the Johnson Space Center. They were very, very active, but NASA in the 60s could ignore them because in general, the American public was very supportive of the space race, beating the Russians to the moon. But once we, once it was, you know, obvious that we were going to beat the Russians to the moon, which was actually a year before the Apollo lunar landing, um, popular support for NASA began to plummet. And the space agency had to realize that it needed to engage this criticism if it was going to maintain popular support and make itself relevant. So NASA begins to figure out ways that it could perhaps spin off some of its technology to, you know, answer some of the critiques of these civil rights activists. So NASA, for instance, um, creates wastewater treatment um, technology that it it starts implementing in some urban areas. And that technology is based on space capsule technology that they use to clean the the water in the space capsules. They do the same with urban air pollution and air monitoring devices. Um, But really the most fascinating technology I, I talk about in the book is that NASA takes these heating and cooling systems that it used in the Apollo space capsule. It actually hired the Odom brothers to help design some of this space capsule technology. And it tries to and does successfully spin off this technology and and implements it in low-income housing projects. Only one. And this is a a problem I discuss in the book as well. This is all very performative. It's not really, it doesn't have that large of an impact on these people's lives in the inner city. But NASA does spin off that space technology into a heating and cooling system in a low-income housing project right near Newark, New Jersey, which is, you know, where one of the worst riots occurred. Um, so NASA becomes very nimble in its ability to, you know, um, respond uh, to, to civil rights and also the other movements as well. So you have this, you have the civil rights movement that uh, is involved in a 
protests uh, or making statements uh, against what NASA is doing throughout the, the 1960s. By the end of the 1960s, they're having this protest at the Apollo 11 launch. But there are also uh, new left activists who, and the new left is very prominent by the late 60s that are getting, in, getting involved in this. Could you take a moment and just explain what the new left was? Because when I, you know, I teach college students and graduate students now, and a lot of them don't even know necessarily what that term um, means. And so what was the new left? What were they opposed? And how do they interact with NASA and the space sure. program during that era? So I think a lot of people conflate the new left and the counterculture, and they sort of think it was all very similar. And what I try to do in the they book, they all had long hair, so they right, must be the same right, 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 exactly. <laughs> and I try to in the book, I really try to make a distinction. And you know, when whenever possible, I try to allow people in those movements to self-identify and I use the terms they used. But in general, I, I, I would say that the new left begins as a, a free speech movement on college campuses in places like Berkeley, California. And then it becomes uh, sort of the main anti-Vietnam War um, movement, uh, at first led by students, but then it, it, it seeps out into the, the wider public. Um, you know, and they call it the new left as opposed to the old left, the old left being sort of the more radical, you know, communists and socialists back in the 1930s. And this is the 60s, so it's they called it the, the new left. Um, so I, I talk about groups such as the you know, Students for a Democratic Society and how they were um, quite critical of the space program um, for a variety of reasons that we could talk about if, if you'd like. Yeah, well, what are some of the reasons why the new left would be opposed to sure. NASA? Uh, is it because NASA was seen as part of – had connections to the military and then the military was fighting the war in, mil yes. in Vietnam? It was. Even before that, though um, – you know, part of the new left uh, really was wary of technology. Um, uh, Mario Savo at Berkeley, uh, he gives a really important free speech, um, you know, sort of public uh, lecture where he, he calls the university a giant machine and that the students have to throw their bodies on the cogs of that machine to make it stop because the, the university had become sort of this, inhuman, um, you know, technology. And there were counterculturalists and, and, and new leftists who embraced technology as well, but in general, they were a little bit wary of technology. And, and it turns out that that was quite fitting because NASA had teamed up with the, the U.S. military during the Vietnam War. Um, in 1967, the military comes to NASA and says, what can you do to help us in Vietnam? And NASA begins to develop technologies to help the military see um, the communists in the jungles of Vietnam better. There was a legibility problem in those forests. They couldn't get through and see them. So NASA begins to develop what it called a cloud camera, which would, um, through satellites, it would take um, weather images um, up over Vietnam and then relay those forecasts to military bases where bomber pilots could then, um, you know, coordinate their runs around the weather. Um, it created an incredible uh, research program called Project ABLE, which was a giant 2,000-foot in diameter mirror, mylar mirror that they were going to place in geosynchronous orbit um, over Vietnam, so it would appear to be hovering over Vietnam. And the idea here would be that at night, that giant mirror would reflect sunlight from the bright side of the Earth and reflect it down into the jungles of Vietnam at an intensity 1.7 times um, a, a full moon. The right. idea being that the military <laughs> could see, see the communists better. 
Um, but what, the one technology that really upset the new left the most was a was a project called um, Igloo White, which was also known as the Electronic Battlefield. Um, um, and what NASA did was it took very sensitive seismometers that it had used in the Apollo program to measure seismic activity on the moon, and it retooled them and dropped them along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And as gorillas went over these seismometers, they recorded hits, and they sent those hits to planes circling above, which then relayed them to a giant computer in Thailand. Um, they calculated the coordinates, sent them to a nearby base, and then fighter pilots took off and did bombing runs where those coordinates had, had first recorded hits. And that is what new leftists were most upset about, because many of their university campuses were doing research for that program. So in some sense, it seems the what they're critical of is this technology. NASA is producing or helping produce technology that is just perpetuating, in their views, perpetuating the war in Vietnam, facilitating the U.S. military yeah. activities in Vietnam. Yes. Uh, well, you talk about how the new left is really wary, um, I think, in general of, of technology, going back to Mario Savio's famous speech mm-hmm. um, on the steps at Berkeley. Well, another group that maybe even been more wary of technology were uh, environmentalists. In the right. late 60s and early 70s is really when you have the flourishing of modern post-war American environmentalism. It's also when we have uh, the first uh, Earth Day in 1970 and you have 20 million people out in the streets around right. the country right. involved in this. And there's been a real flourishing of work on the history of environmentalism recently, such as Adam Adam Rome's wonderful book about Earth Day that called right. The Genius of Earth Day, Frank Zelko's book Make It a Green Peace about the organization Greenpeace, and Finus Dunaway's book about called Seeing Green, which is about environmental images and environmental reform. Now, your book, this current book, though it might have set out to be an environmental history, is certainly not strictly an environmental history by any means, but you do focus a fair amount uh, on environmentalism. So how is your work contributing to this real uh, flourishing of scholarship on the history of environmentalism, or how might it be challenging it? I mean, I think that what's so great about the three works you mentioned and the literature on the environmental movement now is that it's just portraying the movement as a much more complex thing. Right. We used to think of the environmental movement as a white middle class movement concerned, you know, with preserving parks. And those three works just show how much more you know, complex it is, how many how, how much more diverse the players were, um, how, how more how much more complex it was ideologically. Um, so I think that I hope that my work, especially the chapter I do on the environmental movement, can play into that. I think where my work might help build on that a little bit is that those other books, you know, although they do definitely place the environmental movement in a broader context, it's really, you know, about the environmental movement and and the the parameters around that movement, while broader than they may have been if, you know, 20 years ago in our field, um, it's still pretty much about the environmental movement, something that would seem very, very important. relevant to an environmental historian, where I think that what I'm trying to do is to, you know, push those parameters even farther abroad and sort of say, this environmental movement here is just one example um, of of a moment in this historical period where nature and technology are really playing a role in shaping politics, both politics on the national level with regards to the space race, but also politics on the grassroots level. So I think the difference might be is that I'm connecting the environmental movement to a, a broader political 
um, history here than than those other books, although they do engage political history very, very well. And I would be thrilled if my book was placed in the same uh, list as, as those three, which I've read in our amazing books. Well, I would certainly put it in that, uh, that list for, for, for sure. And one of the aspects of that chapter where you focus on environmentalism that I think is very useful is when you talk about the, the genesis and impact of this, I guess what's become to be called the whole earth yeah. image. Yeah. Um, and if I imagine if people Google that and, and search it, they can, they can find it. It's, it's an iconic image of the earth that was taken by one of the Apollo spacecrafts. Cause can you tell me a little bit about sure. why, why people wanted an image of the entire, sure. entire earth and then why that image was so important for uh, environmentalists of that era. I should say that interestingly, although this chapter was sort of, um, the, the kernel of the, the book's genesis in a way. I wrote it much later in the process of writing this book, and it was also one of the most difficult chapters to write. I think because I had those environmental historians on my shoulder sort of talking to me and saying, you know, uh, you better not mess this one up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, what, what I was amazed at when I did was doing the research for that was that I, I that image, the whole earth image, is sort, is pretty much what got me thinking about this project to begin with. But when I went to do research on that image, which was taken in 1972, and it, you know everyone claims it, be, it immediately became this icon, icon, an iconic image of the environmental movement, a green, you know, sort of symbol of um, you know planetary stewardship. When I went to do research on it, it didn't show up. I mean, I looked at Earth Day, obviously not in Earth Day 1970, because it was taken in 72, even though there were whole Earth images taken before the whole Earth image. So it wasn't in Earth Day 1970. It doesn't appear in Earth Day 1980. I mean, in 1980, it's a whole other set of issues. It's a lot of it has to do with um, nuclear power um, and pollution. Um, and it wasn't until 1990 that these images of whole Earth from space begin to really play a role in both promoting the environmental movement and also um, sort of becoming sort of grassroots signifiers of this concern. So I went back and thought, okay, if it's not there, first of all, what did it mean in the beginning? those images, and how did they become green? And what I argue in the book is that in the very beginning, those images really meant global unity. That was the main thrust of what they meant. And this comes from a, a short little essay by Archibald McLeish about sort of the image of Earth from space. When it's first published in the New York Times, he writes a small little essay about, you know, we're all brothers on this, this Earth together. And, and from then on, it really becomes about global unity. Um, and it's not until later when I, I argue that NASA begins to take data that it's gathering from satellites and also from very, very powerful computer models. And it begins to take that data and, and work it and then actually display it in ways that are reminiscent of that whole Earth image, um, that, that the image becomes green. And I'm thinking here of two examples. The most prominent is the ozone whole image when it was first published. Um, it really it was very prominent in the eighties. I exactly. can remember that image. Yeah, it that looks, era. it looks almost like the whole earth image, but there's this data overlay on it that suggests this ozone hole. Um, and again, you know, because NASA is a civil agency and dependent upon public funding, it actually has to use these images to sort of promote what's going on to promote its science. And they actually have a visualization studio today, which takes data and figures out ways to make it more readable for the public. They have editors, they have um, writers that, that help narrate images. I mean, it's an incredibly savvy 
you know, production process. It takes scientific data and makes it into readable images for the public. And, I'm and emotionally, you, re- that's one of the, yeah. you have a line in that that I think is 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 right on about how NASA is able to t- take these and make them emotionally resonant with people, yeah. Uh, yeah. so that people can understand it. But it has some sort, sort of emotional connection to them, it, makes that data totally. meaningful to them. Because you know the, the ozone hole was discovered not by NASA. Um, but by a British survey team in the Antarctic. And when they published their findings in Nature, they called it ozone depletion, and it had a graph showing ozone depleting. Well, six months later, NASA you know, changes its um, instruments on its satellites to pick up this ozone depletion and then publishes its findings as an ozone hole, right, overlaid on top of an image that looks like whole Earth. And all of a sudden the ozone depletion, which no one really took notice of, has become an ozone hole, and that creates a crisis. So, you know, it's pretty fascinating how the imagery led helped, helped lead to what is now seen as a crisis. Well, let's talk a little bit more about not just that imagery, but imagery throughout the book. Um, the book is chock full with uh, wonderful images and political cartoons and things such as that. And one of the characteristics of, I think, your your scholarship that I've noticed and that appeared in your earlier book about the Civilian Conservation Corps is your use of and close reading of, of images, cartoons, um, scientific images and data and things like that. Uh, so I would like you to talk a little bit about why do you think these sources are important for historians and other scholars studying the space race and social movements? Sure. What do these sorts of, of images or sources reveal that other sources do not? Well, first of all, they're fun. And I think the reader, readers like to, to read them. So that's something that we should all keep in mind. Um, secondly, I just want to give a shout out to both my editor, uh, Kathleen McDermott and Harvard University Press, who allowed me to include all these images and were very, very open to it because they knew that the images were part of my analysis. So, um, But the reason images, I feel, are important is because I think a lot of historians tend to see them as different than other more traditional historic texts. So historians might look to census tracts or diaries or a, a, a story in a newspaper and see that as a text and then they'd make their argument from those sources. And then to sort of illustrate the argument or to sort of, you know, sort of have something on the side that, that, that suggests the argument, they'll include a, a, a political cartoon or a, a painting that might sort of encapsulate everything they've argued before through the other sources. And, you know, what I realized from my work as the editor of the journal and, and that gallery section is that, we have to start thinking of these visual images um, as sources in themselves Um, and not just sources that uh, illustrate arguments, but sources that you can use to make arguments on your own. And it takes a deep reading of the arguments of of the, of the images, right? You can't just pop up an image and, and, you know, uh, let the reader read it on their own. I think that what I try to do in the book is really lead the reader through my own reading of the images. Um, maybe it, we can talk about this more if you had a, want to have a couple questions on this. I'm not sure if no, I... No, we can come back. No, this is great. We can come back to maybe some of the other images uh, in the book now that you sort of laid the groundwork about this this approach. But I, I do appreciate through it. I mean, the images aren't just decoration or are not just used for 
um, illustrative purposes yeah. in your book. They're really as an object of analysis and showing both the, I think, cultural and political work that they that they yeah. do. And so I, let's come. Oh, go I ahead. Think, go well, ahead. I, think, I think also that a lot of people will include an image and they'll they'll leave. They'll put the analysis of that image in their caption or a small paragraph, you know, below the image. Um, and that's, I think that's a first step, but I think that that, that analysis should go in the text. So what I do is that, you know, in the, the text of the book, I'm referring to images and I'm leading the reader sort of through my interpretation of those images and what they mean. And one of the best examples might be, you know, since we just discussed the environmental material is I began to look at postcards, um, from NASA, uh, in the sixties and seventies, especially from the Cape Canaveral area. And I saw this shift in what the postcards were presenting. Um, and I used that shift in my analysis of, of, um, you know, that, that chapter. Uh, that's great. Well, let's come back. We'll come back to some of that, sure. uh, hopefully with maybe some of the other chapters. Uh, one chapter that I was surprised to see, cause I just, I, I couldn't see necessarily what the connection was going to be when I started out, but it became much more clear as I moved along was the, uh, between the uh, Apollo program and social movements was a chapter called Heavenly Bodies. I knew which you were dis- going to say that. <laughs> discuss connections between the women's movement and the space program. And a lot of the chapter, it seemed to me, it, you talk about these connections between the women's movement and the space program, but a lot of the chapter is focusing on uh, masculinity and femininity and how this infused the rhetoric produced by NASA and politicians supporting the space race. And it made me think, actually, of your earlier book on the Civilian Conservation Corps when you do a very good analysis of kind of gender and uh, the CCC, which put young men to to work um, in the nation's parks and wildlands. And so how did gender matter in the space program? Well, I think that on um, an ideological level, sort of a, a cultural level, um, it, it mattered quite a bit. I mean, I, um, but I want to add that, I, that the hard part about this chapter was also making the argument that it mattered on a material level also, mm-hmm. that the physical bodies mattered. On a cultural level, it, what it came down to was that um, much of NASA's rhetoric centered around um, these male astronauts and that yes. space exploration was masculine. And I also want to add that it was white. Um, yes. So part of the sort of um, prestige that NASA got was to present people like John Glenn, um, so these Middle American, All American white men, um, as as symbols of the space race. And part of this had to do um, with the space race. The Russians in 1962 actually put Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman, into orbit, um, and immediately the American press and NASA attacked her. They said that she was basically um, along for the ride. She didn't guide the ship at all. That a monkey could have done what she did. And, and, um, the Russians used this as this incredible, you know, proclamation of the equality of the sexes when she returned. Um, and NASA quickly dismissed it. And then for the next, you know, 30 years, um, 20 years, uh, NASA refused to allow women to be, um, astronauts. So there was this cultural and political context around it. But I think that what I found most interesting about that chapter was that there is there, there was a material side to that story too. NASA also claimed um, that it couldn't develop spacesuits to accommodate women's bodies. Number one, wow. it claimed that women's bodies were not fit for space travel. This had a lot to do with um, women's reproductive um, systems, um, and then it also claimed that the simulations, the environmental simulators 
that NASA had developed to help train astronaut bodies um, to move through outer space. They created these elaborate systems on Earth, you know, fake, everything from fake lunar landscapes to anti-gravity machines. NASA claimed that they couldn't recalibrate all of them and they couldn't redesign spacesuits to accommodate women's bodies, which is completely false. Um, and so what, what happens is that uh, a private um, medical center that actually oversaw some of the Mercury 7 tests to, to figure out which astronauts should be Mercury 7 astronauts, um, they actually conduct experiments on 13 women back in the 1960s. And several of the women passed the, the tests, all the tests um, in the first round. Um, but NASA still denies women uh, the, the ability to become astronauts because it's, it, it said they didn't have enough jet pilot experience. Um, so the women's movement becomes very upset with this and actually does its own tests and finds out that women's bodies are actually in many ways more efficient for space travel because they're lighter, they use less energy, they breathe, le breathe less oxygen, which would mean it would be less expensive for, for space travel. Um, so th th what I'm getting at here is that there's cultural and material um, aspects to this story. Um, and it really centers around female bodies, and that is where the environmental history sort of sort of comes in here. No, and I like how you weaved all of that together, your, the, the cultural analysis and the material analysis in that chapter. And the cultural aspect of masculinity, I mean, I couldn't help, but when I was reading that chapter and you're talking about sort of men and masculinity in the space programs, thinking of the, the classic movie from the 1980s, which is based on a book by Tom Wolfe, The Right Stuff. Mm -hmm. And I went back and I watched some clips from that. And it seems that astronauts in the, in, you know, in the 60s and, you know, the early 60s through the early 70s are really, um, are, are embodiments or, or the, the highest spectacle of post-war masculinity. Yeah. Do you think that's, that is the case at the time? I mean, it runs all through that movie in a way that obviously when I watched that movie years ago, I didn't, I didn't notice. Obviously that movie's about the Mercury astronauts, not yeah. the Apollo astronauts, but it seems that a lot of your analysis would apply to them and the way their bodies and, and the way they're talked about uh, that it would apply to the Apollo astronauts as well. I think definitely. I mean, I mean, there was, so much hype about these men. I mean, you know, the, the Apollo astronauts had a, a contract with Life magazine, all the astronauts did, um, where Life magazine could sort of portray them to the American public. Um, um, but of course, NASA had the right to edit the, the articles as they came out. But if you, even if you look at Life magazine, let alone the movies, um, these men are always portrayed um, doing physical acts. I mean, there's a great scene with John Glenn running on the beach. There's... Um, Ed White, another astronaut, is doing pull-ups with his daughter and son in the backyard. Um, and then there's one great comment about one of the astronauts working out by putting his 98-pound wife on his back and running up and down the street, yeah. right? Um, so they're constantly promoting the, um, you know, these men as, you know, sort of perfect specimens, sort of supermen, right? And the funny, interesting thing is that the Russians go at it quite, quite differently. They sort of promote their cosmonauts as sort of everyday people, everyday men who, you know, the Soviet system is, is putting into space. Um, so, again, it has this connection to this broader Cold War context. And the women's movement was just incredibly savvy at, at trying to break this sort of cultural stereotype down in really interesting, wonderful ways. Well, we've talked a lot about different movements that 
um, had a beef with, with NASA that were opposed to it in the space program in some way, the women's movement, the new left and the civil rights movement. But there was one movement that was growing during this time that uh, had a much more positive view of NASA and the space race, and that would be the, the new right. Yeah. And you talk about public figures in the new right, people like uh, William Buckley, Ayn Rand, Barry Goldwater, who really embraced the Apollo program, seeing it in some ways as, quote, a triumph of the squares. And so why was that? Why did they appreciate or, or like the space program so much? I mean, this is the last chapter of the book, and it, it's a other chapters focus on sort of one movement, and this last chapter focuses on the conservative movement and also the counterculture. And I think part of the reason they saw NASA as a triumph of the squares was because of the counterculture, right? It was it was right there, um, sort of gaining popularity. And this was this was an event. The Apollo mission was an event that these conservatives could sort of latch onto and sort of say, "Look, this is the way." It should be. This is how we get things done. Um, there was a great speech that the head of NASA gave at a university commencement, and it was titled Potland versus Squareland. And he talks about basically NASA being a part of Squareland, Middle America, people who went to church on Sundays and did their homework and paid their taxes. And Potland was this sort of amorphous, you know, sort of underground hot smoking community that, that, you know, didn't do those things. And I think it just set the tone really well for um, the, the why these conservatives felt that NASA was such a, a good thing to grab onto. The other issue is economics, and that's that, you know, people like Ayn Rand and William F. Buckley saw NASA, which was a you know, civilian agency, um, as a symbol of this sort of free market democracy. So NASA um, hired you know, thousands, tens of thousands of contractors to build the Apollo rockets and the Apollo space capsules. Um, It employed university professors to do a lot of the research. So it was seen as sort of this, in a sense, almost like this neoliberal moment where there's all this competition going on and it's free market. And it was completely juxtaposed to the Russian system at the time, which was shrouded in secrecy and, you know, our free market system won out. Um, so there's both a cultural side to it as well as an economic side for the conservatives as well. Um, in that same chapter where you talk about the new right, you also talk about uh, the counterculture. And in some ways it seems the NASA and the space program becomes a foil for the hippies or those in the counterculture. Am I right to say yes, that? Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that you know what happens is that the counterculture sort of sees NASA as part of this military establishment, you know, the military industrial space complex. And, um, they, they sort of, you know, the other movements protested very publicly. They, they marched, um, women, um, you know, uh, held fake beauty pageants with Apollo astronauts as the contestants to protest NASA's all male astronaut corps. Um, you know, students, from this anti-war movement marched on labs that were doing research for the Vietnam war. What the hippies did was I think a little bit different. They really um, retreated into their own sort of lifestyle and through their lifestyle choices, they were, I think making quite political statements about their opposition to NASA. And they did this through music. I mean, at the Woodstock music festival, there are many songs and and musicians there who write about um, their opposition to um, the space program. Uh, they do it through things like guerrilla theater. There were hippies in, in Arkansas who did a mock, um, 
landing of, of um, astronauts who then bought land from Indians and just like, uh, you know, sort of recreating um, the purchase of Manhattan. Um, and then they did it through things like poetry or um, art. Um, so it was interesting to try to examine the counterculture's opposition to NASA because it was it's, it was less overtly political. But what I argue is that it was it was as political. It was just different. It was more of a you know personal politics rather than a, a very public politics. And that seems to be one of the ways that we could to help understand one of the differences between the new left and uh, the yes. counterculture, but besides their long hair is the counterculture tended to focus more on these sort of personal expressions of politics rather than, right. you know, exactly. And massive that, march it yeah. and changing policy and things such as that. And that. That chapter talks a lot about a lot of these countercultural people moving to these, these sort of communes and using technology in a way that was very local and very small scale and NASA instead promoting um, technology, in this case, solar technology, um, in a much more grand, large-scale way that would that would help people in, for instance, suburbia. Um, so there's the NASA definitely chooses between the counterculture and the conservatives. It, it, it chooses consciously to go with Middle America in its promotion of solar power, which it developed for space capsules. It tries to promote them for suburban homes. Um, uh, while you know, so it's this interesting moment where NASA, you know chooses to go with William F. Buckley. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, your book, for the most part, uh, it, it covers the 60s and 70s and a little bit of things in the 80s, so it basically ends by the 1980s. And as I was reading it, I was thinking one of the differences between the late 60s and early 70s and today is that uh, NASA and space exploration occupies far less of an influential place in public discourse than it did back then. I mean, I was born in the early 70s, and so I have no memories of even the late stage moon landings, but I very much in the 70s remember growing up kind of in the, the echo of those right. moon landings. And I mean, kids more than wanting to be a cowboy or something like that, they wanted to be an astronaut uh, at the time. And I think in a way that they wouldn't necessarily now. So could you write a book like yours um, for the era from the 80s till now? Or does such a history really depend on a space program that is very much more in the public eye than uh, than NASA and and work in space is today? I think it would be more difficult to write it for today, for sure. I mean, I think that if you look back in the '60s, there were, um, you know, there were it was such a, a part of the you know the culture that it, it, it makes the connections between. Um, you know, the Apollo program and these grassroots movements that much easier to find. But what I do think is problematic about the contemporary space, you know, exploration moment um, is this turn to privatization. Because what my book really shows is that during the 60s, because NASA was a publicly funded agency, the people had a say in what NASA did. And one of the main arguments of this book is that the protests of the 1960s against NASA pressured the organization to turn its technology around, so to speak, from exploring space to also exploring planet Earth. So satellites and um, a whole host of other technologies are, are used to assess not only ecological changes on Earth, but also to assess pollution in cities and to assess, um, you know, uh, uh, crops in the third world. There's a whole, you know, movement to use Landsat satellites to help uh, the developing world. Um, 
so I think that what happens when you take that exploration effort and you remove it from the civic um, the civic realm, um, in a sense, you, you you give up some control by the public over what the space program will do. Um, you're basically, you know, taking the soapbox away, right? So in the 60s, people could get up on the soapbox and they could say, I don't want NASA to do this. I don't want NASA to do that. And NASA had to deal with that and adjust. And it did. Now you have SpaceX and these other organizations, private organizations that are going to basically be taking tourists up into space. And we're going to wealthy, lose wealthy, wealthy tourists. Exactly. And we are going to lose as a people, we're going to lose um, any sort of control we had over space exploration, which means we're going to lose control over the science. Um, and, you know, at, at the moment with, you know, climate change, uh, um, you know, at this crisis we're in, this is a very, very problematic moment if, if space exploration becomes privatized, because then, then how, do you, how, do you, how do you get the science done, number one, and then how do we publicize the science, right? Well, and then also we depend on, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, we depend on NASA and maybe other spa- aspects that, of the federal government that does um, research in space to just collect some of the base data about Arctic sea ice that is retreating. Um, there's not necessarily what money, what money is there to be made by private entities exactly. doing that. We depend on these government agencies just to be collecting that data. And exactly. I think we have not necessarily realized how important NASA has been for that. Exactly. As a matter of fact, there's a great documentary coming out next year. It's the 60th anniversary of, of NASA's founding and Rory Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy's daughter, great documentary filmmaker, um, she's right, doing a documentary on just this, you know, NASA science and, and what does this mean that, um, you know, privatization in, in space exploration is, is taking hold and what does this mean for our ability to not only gain this data, but also to use it and publicize it for the crisis that we're facing right now. Well, I think it's a testament to your book and how it, it speaks to a lot of the issues that we're, we're grappling with today. Um, I think we need to bring the interview to a, a close, but before I do, wh- could you tell the audience what you are working on now? Sure. Um, I am going to write um, with my co-editor from the journal Environmental History, Cindy Ott, who's also a great friend. Um, we realized that um, during our time as editors, uh, a lot of people came to us and sort of asking us a lot of information about how we used images and how the how our vision is of using images in the journal. And we thought that there might be a, an audience for a short book, 150 pages on sort of a top 10 tools for, for using visual culture, um, both within environmental history, but also the um, environmental humanities. So it's going to be 10 short chapters, sort of a, each chapter is sort of a tool you can think about both to interpret images, but also then to use them in your teaching or use them in your research. Um, so I think it's going to be a really fun project. Um, you know, first of all, working with Cindy will be amazing, um, but also um, just, you know, diving into these images and sort of thinking about how to use them and why we use them and um, better ways to use them could be really helpful, I think, too. So I'm excited about that. I do. As I said, I thought the way you used images in this were really, in this book was really creative. And so creating a you know, a shorter volume, kind of a how-to volume that would exactly. that would better enable scholars and other people, students to, to do this, I think would be really useful. And I, hopefully when you publish that, you and your uh, co-writer, uh, Cindy Ott, can come on New Books Network and talk about that too. We would love that. It would be fantastic. 
Well, anyway, Neil, thank you for telling us a little bit about the book. We've been talking about Neil Marr's book, Apollo in the Age of Aquarius, from Harvard University Press. Uh, thanks again, Neil, for talking with us. It was wonderful, Bob. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you.